0: chapter 14 part 1 of trent's last case this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by kirsten Weber. trent's last case chapter 14 double cunning part 1 an old oaken desk with a deep body stood by the window in a room that overlooked st james's park from a height the room was large, furnished and decorated in the mode by someone who had brought taste to the work, but the hand of the bachelor lay heavy upon it. John Marlowe unlocked the desk, and drew a long, stout envelope from the back of the well. "'I understand,' he said to Mr. Cupples, "'that you have read this.' "'I read it for the first time two days ago,' replied Mr. Cupples who, seated on a sofa, was peering about the room with a benignant face. We have discussed it fully. Marlowe turned to Trent. "'There is your manuscript,' he said, laying the envelope on the table. "'I have gone over it three times. I do not believe there is another man who could have got as much of the truth as you have set down there.' Trent ignored the compliment. He sat by the table, gazing stonily at the fire, his long legs twisted beneath his chair. "'You mean, of course,' he said, drawing the envelope towards him, "'that there is more of the truth to be disclosed now. We are ready to hear you as soon as you like. I expect it will be a long story, and the longer the better, so far as I am concerned. I want to understand thoroughly.' "'What we should both like, I think, is some preliminary account of Manderson and your relations with him. It seemed to me from the first that the character of the dead man must be somehow an element in the business.' "'You were right,' Marlowe answered grimly. He crossed the room and seated himself on a corner of the tall cushion-topped fender. "'I will begin as you suggest.' "'I ought to tell you beforehand,' said Trent, looking him in the eyes, "'that although I am here to listen to you, I have not as yet any reason to doubt the conclusions I have stated here,' he tapped the envelope. "'It is a defence that you'll be putting forward. You understand that?' "'Perfectly.' Marlowe was cool and in complete possession of himself." a man different, indeed, from the worn-out, nervous being Trent remembered at Marlstone a year and a half ago. His tall, lithe figure was held with the perfection of muscular tone. His brow was candid, his blue eyes were clear, though they still had, as he paused collecting his ideas, the look that had troubled Trent at their first meeting. Only the lines of his mouth showed that he knew himself, in a position of difficulty, and meant to face it. Sigsby Manderson was not a man of normal mind, Marlowe began in his quiet voice. Most of the very rich men I met with in America had become so by virtue of abnormal greed, or abnormal industry, or abnormal personal force, or abnormal luck. None of them had remarkable intellects. Manderson delighted, too, in heaping up wealth. He worked incessantly at it. He was a man of dominant will. He had quite his share of luck. But what made him singular was his brain-power. In his own country they would perhaps tell you that it was his ruthlessness in pursuit of his aims that was his most striking characteristic but there are hundreds of them who would have carried out his plans with just as little consideration for others if they could have formed the plans. I used to think that his strain of Indian blood, remote as it was, might have something to do with the cunning and pitilessness of the man. Strangely enough, the existence of that strain was unknown to any one but himself and me, It was when he asked me to apply my taste for genealogical work to his own obscure family history, that I made the discovery that he had in him a share of the blood of the Iroquois chief Montour and his French wife, a terrible woman, who ruled the savage politics of the tribes of the wilderness two hundred years ago. The Mandersons were active in the fur trade, on the Pennsylvania border in those days, and more than one of them married Indian women. Other Indian blood than Montours may have descended to Manderson, for all I can say, through previous and subsequent unions. Some of the wives' antecedents were quite untraceable, and there were so many generations of pioneering before the whole country was brought under civilization. Manderson was thunderstruck at what I told him, and was anxious to conceal it from every soul. Of course I never gave it away when he lived, and I don't think he supposed I would, but I have thought since that his mind took a turn against me from that time onward. It happened about a year before his death. Had Manderson, asked Mr. Couples, so unexpectedly that the other started, any definable religious attitude? Marlowe considered a moment. "'None that I ever heard of,' he said. Worship and prayer were quite unknown to him, so far as I could see, and I never heard him mention religion. I should doubt if he had any real sense of God at all, or if he was capable of knowing God through the emotions. But I understood that, as a child, he had had a religious upbringing with a strong moral side to it. His private life was, in the usual limited sense, blameless.' He was almost ascetic in his habits, except as to smoking. I lived with him five years without ever knowing him to tell a direct verbal falsehood, constantly as he used to practice deceit in other forms. Can you understand the soul of a man who never hesitated to take steps that would have the effect of hoodwinking people, who would use every trick of the markets to mislead, and who was at the same time scrupulous never to utter a direct lie on the most insignificant matter. Manderson was like that, and he was not the only one. I suppose you might compare the state of mind to that of a soldier, who is personally a truthful man, but who will stick at nothing to deceive the enemy. The rules of the game allow it, and the same may be said of business, as many businessmen regard it, only with them it is always wartime. It is a sad world, observed Mr. Cupples, as you say, Marlowe agreed now, I was saying that one could always take Manderson's word if he gave it in a definite form. The first time I ever heard him utter a downright lie was on the night he died, and hearing it. I believe, saved me from being hanged as his murderer." Marlowe stared at the light above his head, and Trent moved impatiently in his chair. "'Before we come to that,' he said, "'will you tell us exactly on what footing you were with Manderson during the years you were with him?' "'We were on very good terms from beginning to end,' answered Marlowe. "'Nothing like friendship. He was not a man for making friends, but the best of terms, as between a trusted employee and his chief. I went to him as private secretary just after getting my degree at Oxford. For a long time I liked the position greatly. When one is attached to an active American plutocrat in the prime of life, one need not have many dull moments. Besides, it made me independent. My father had some serious business reverses about that time, and I was glad to be able to do without an allowance from him. At the end of the first year, Manderson doubled my salary. "'It's big money,' he said, "'but I guess I don't lose.' You see, by that time I was doing a great deal more than accompanying him on horseback in the morning and playing chess in the evening, which was mainly what he had required, I was attending to his houses, his farm in Ohio, his shooting in Maine, his horses, his cars, and his yacht. I had become a walking railway guide and an expert cigar buyer. I was always learning something. Well, now you understand what my position was in regard to Manderson during the last few years of my connection with him. It was a happy life for me on the whole. I was busy, my work was varied and interesting. I had time to amuse myself, too, and money to spend. At one time I made a fool of myself about a girl, and that was not a happy time, but it taught me to understand the great goodness of Mrs. Marlowe." Marlowe inclined his head to Mr. Cupples as he said this, "'She may choose to tell you about it. As for her husband, He had never varied in his attitude towards me, in spite of the change that came over him in the last months of his life, as you know. He treated me well and generously, in his unsympathetic way, and I never had a feeling that he was less than satisfied with his bargain. That was the sort of footing we lived upon. And it was that continuance of his attitude right up to the end that made the revelation so shocking when I was suddenly shown on the night on which he met his end, the depth of crazy hatred of myself that was in Manderson's soul. The eyes of Trent and Mr. Couples met for an instant. "'You never suspected that he hated you before that time?' asked Trent. And Mr. Couples asked at the same moment, "'To what did you attribute it?' "'I never guessed until that night,' answered Marlowe that he had the smallest ill-feeling toward me. How long it existed, I do not know. I cannot imagine why it was there. I was forced to think, when I considered the thing in those awful days after his death, that it was a case of a madman's delusion, that he believed me to be plotting against him, as they so often do. Some such insane conviction must have been at the root of it, but who can sound the abysses of a lunatic's fancy? Can you imagine the state of mind in which a man dooms himself to death with the object of delivering someone he hates to the hangman? Mr. Couples moved sharply in his chair. "'You say Manderson was responsible for his own death?' he asked. Trent glanced at him with an eye of impatience, and resumed his intent watch upon the face of Marlowe, in the relief of speech, it was now less pale and drawn. "'I do say so,' Marlowe answered concisely, and looked his questioner in the face. Mr. Cupples nodded. "'Before we proceed to the elucidation of your statement,' observed the old gentleman, in the tone of one discussing a point of abstract science, "'it may be remarked that the state of mind which you attribute to Manderson,' "'Suppose we have the story first, Trent interrupted, gently laying a hand on Mr. Cupple's arm. "'You were telling us,' he went on, turning to Marlowe, "'how things stood between you and Manderson. Now will you tell us the facts of what happened that night?' Marlowe flushed at the barely perceptible emphasis which Trent laid upon the word facts. He drew himself up. "'Bunner and myself dined with Mr. and Mrs. Manderson that Sunday evening. He began speaking carefully. It was just like other dinners, at which the four of us had been together. Manderson was taciturn and gloomy, as we had latterly become accustomed to see him. We others kept a conversation going. We rose from the table, I suppose, about nine. Mrs. Manderson went to the drawing-room, and Bonner went up to the hotel to see an acquaintance. Manderson asked me to come into the orchard behind the house, saying he wished to have a talk. We paced up and down the pathway there, out of earshot from the house, and Manderson, as he smoked his cigar, spoke to me in his cool, deliberate way. He had never seemed more sane, or more well-disposed toward me. He said he wanted me to do him an important service. There was a big thing on. It was a secret affair. Bunner knew nothing of it, and the less I knew the better. He wanted me to do exactly as he directed, and not bother my head about reasons. This, I may say, was quite characteristic of Manderson's method of going to work. If at times he required a man to be a mere tool in his hand, he would tell him so. He had used me in the same kind of way a dozen times. I assured him he could rely on me, and said I was ready. Right now, he asked. I said, of course I was. He nodded, and said, I tell you his words as well as I can recollect them. Well, attend to this. There is a man in England now who is in this thing with me. He was to have left to-morrow for Paris by the noon-boat from Southampton to Havre. His name is George Harris. At least that's the name he is going by. Do you remember the name?" "'Yes,' I said. When I went up to London a week ago you asked me to book a cabin in that name on the boat that goes to-morrow. I gave you the ticket." "'Here it is,' he said, producing it from his pocket. "'Now,' Manderson said to me, poking his cigar-butt at me with each sentence, in a way he used to have, "'George Harris cannot leave England to-morrow. I find I shall want him where he is, and I want Bunner where he is, but somebody has got to go by that boat and take certain papers to Paris, or else my plan is going to fall to pieces. Will you go?' I said, Certainly, I am here to obey orders. He bit his cigar, and said, That's all right. But these are not just ordinary orders, not the kind of thing one can ask of a man in the ordinary way of his duty to an employer. The point is this. The deal I am busy with is one in which neither myself nor anyone known to be connected with me must appear, as yet. That is vital. But these people I am up against know your face as well as they know mine. If my secretary is known in certain quarters to have crossed to Paris at this time, and to have interviewed certain people, and that would be known as soon as it happened, then the game is up. He threw away his cigar end and looked at me questioningly. I didn't like it much, but I liked failing Manderson at a pinch still less. I spoke lightly. I said I supposed I should have to conceal my identity, and I would do my best. I told him I used to be pretty good at makeup. He nodded in approval. He said That's good. I judged you would not let me down. Then he gave me my instructions. You take the car right now, and start for Southampton. There's no train that will fit in. You'll be driving all night. Barring accidents, you ought to get there by six in the morning. But whenever you arrive, drive straight to the Grand Hotel, and ask for George Harris. If he's there, tell him you are to go over instead of him, and ask him to telephone me here." It is very important he should know that at the earliest moment possible. But if he isn't there, that means he has got the instructions I wired today, and hasn't gone to Southampton. In that case, you don't want to trouble about him any more, but just wait for the boat. You can leave the car at a garage under a fancy name, mine must not be given, see about changing your appearance, I don't care how, so you do it well. Travel by the boat as George Harris. Let on to be anything you like, but be careful, and don't talk much to anybody. When you arrive, take a room at the Hotel St. Petersburg. You will receive a note or message there, addressed to George Harris, telling you where to take the wallet I shall give you. The wallet is locked, and you want to take good care of it. Have you got all that clear? I repeated the instructions. I asked if I should return from Paris, after handing over the wallet. As soon as you like, he said. And mind this—whatever happens, don't communicate with me at any stage of the journey. If you don't get the message in Paris at once, just wait until you do—days, if necessary. But not a line of any sort to me, understand? Now get ready as quick as you can. I'll go with you in the car a little way. Hurry." That is, so far as I can remember, the exact substance of what Manderson said to me that night. I went to my room, changed into day clothes, and hastily threw a few necessaries into a kit-bag. My mind was in a whirl, not so much at the nature of the business as at the suddenness of it. I think I remember telling you the last time we met he turned to trent that manderson had rather a fondness for doing things in a storybook style other things being equal he delighted in a bit of mystification and melodrama and i told myself that this was manderson all over i hurried downstairs with my bag and rejoined him in the library He handed me a stout leather letter-case, about eight inches by six, fastened with a strap with a lock on it. I could just squeeze it into my side pocket. Then I went to get out the car from the garage behind the house. As I was bringing it round to the front, a disconcerting thought struck me. I remembered that I had only a few shillings in my pocket. For some time past, I had been keeping myself very short of cash, and for this reason, which I tell you because it is a vital point, as you will see in a minute, I was living temporarily on borrowed money. I had always been careless about money while I was with Manderson, and being a gregarious animal, I had made many friends, most of them belonging to a New York set, that had little to do but get rid of the large incomes given them by their parents. Still I was very well paid, and I was too busy even to attempt to go very far with them in that amusing occupation. I was still well on the right side of the ledger until I began, merely out of curiosity, to play at speculation. It's a very old story, particularly in Wall Street. I thought it was easy. I was lucky at first, I would always be prudent, and so on. Then came the day when I went out of my depth. In one week I was separated from my role, as Bonner expressed it when I told him, and I owed money, too. I had had my lesson. Now in this pass I went to Manderson and told him what I had done, and how I stood. He heard me with a very grim smile, And then, with the nearest approach to sympathy I had ever found in him, he advanced me a sum on account of my salary that would clear me. Don't play the markets any more, was all he said. Now, on that Sunday night, Manderson knew that I was practically without any money in the world. He knew that Bunner knew it, too he may have known that i had even borrowed a little money from bunner for pocket-money until my next cheque was due which owing to my anticipation of my salary would not have been a large one bear this knowledge of manderson's in mind as soon as i had brought the car round i went into the library and stated the difficulty to manderson what followed gave me slight as it was my first impression of something odd being afoot. As soon as I mentioned the word expenses, his hand went mechanically to his left hip-pocket, where he always kept a little case, containing notes to the value of about a hundred pounds in our money. This was such a rooted habit in him that I was astonished to see him check the movement suddenly. Then, to my greater amazement, he swore viciously under his breath. I had never heard him do this before, but Bunner had told me that of late he had often shown irritation in this way when they were alone. Has he mislaid his note-case was the question that flashed through my mind, but it seemed to me that it could not affect his plan at all, and I will tell you why. The week before, when I had gone up to London to carry out various commissions, including the booking of a berth for Mr. George Harris, I had drawn a thousand pounds for Manderson from his bankers, and all at his request in notes of small amounts. I did not know what this unusually large sum in cash was for, but I did know that the packets of notes were in his locked desk in the library, or had been earlier in the day when I had seen him fingering them as he sat at the desk. But instead of turning to the desk, Manderson stood looking at me. There was fury in his face, and it was a strange sight to see him gradually master it, until his eyes grew cold again. Wait in the car, he said slowly. I will get some money. We both went out, and as I was getting into my overcoat in the hall, I saw him enter the drawing-room, which, you remember, was on the other side of the entrance hall. I stepped out on the lawn before the house and smoked a cigarette, pacing up and down. I was asking myself again and again where that thousand pounds was, whether it was in the drawing-room, and if so, why. Presently, as I passed one of the drawing-room windows, I noticed Mrs. Manderson's shadow on the thin silk curtain. She was standing at her escritoire, the window was open and as I passed, I heard her say, "'I have not quite thirty pounds here. Will that be enough?' I did not hear the answer, but next moment Manderson's shadow was mingled with hers, and I heard the chink of money. Then, as he stood by the window, and I was moving away, these words of his came to my ears, and these, at least I can repeat exactly, for astonishment, stamped them on my memory.' I'm going out now. Marlowe has persuaded me to go for a moonlight run in the car. He is very urgent about it. He says it will help me sleep, and I guess he is right. I have told you that, in the course of four years, I had never once heard Manderson utter a direct lie about anything, great or small. I believed that I understood the man's queer, skin-deep morality and I could have sworn that if he was firmly pressed with a question that could not be evaded, he would either refuse to answer or tell the truth. But what had I just heard? No answer to any question. A voluntary statement, precise in terms, that was utterly false. The unimaginable had happened. It was almost as if one's dearest friend, in a moment of closest sympathy, had suddenly struck one in the face." The blood rushed to my head, and I stood still on the grass. I stood there until I heard his step at the front door, and then I pulled myself together and stepped quickly to the car. He handed me a banker's paper bag with the gold notes in it. There's more than you'll want there, he said, and I pocketed it mechanically. For a minute or so I stood discussing with Manderson, it was by one of those tour de force of which one's mind is capable under great excitement certain points about the route of the long drive before me i had made the run several times by day and i believe i spoke quite calmly and naturally about it but while i spoke my mind was seething in a flood of suddenly-born suspicion and fear i did not know what i feared i simply felt fear somehow I did not know how, connected with Manderson. My soul once opened to it, fear rushed in like an assaulting army. I I felt—I knew—that something was altogether wrong and sinister, and I felt myself to be the object of it. Yet Manderson was surely no enemy of mine. Then my thoughts reached out wildly for an answer to the question why he had told that lie? and all the time the blood hammered in my ears, where is that money? Reason struggled hard to set up the suggestion that the two things were not necessarily connected. The instinct of a man in danger would not listen to it. As we started, and the car took the curve into the road, it was merely the unconscious part of me that steered and controlled it, and that made occasional empty remarks as we slid along in the moonlight. Within me was a confusion and vague alarm that was far worse than any definite terror I ever felt. About a mile from the house, you remember, one passed on one's left, a gate on the other side of which was the golf course. There, Manderson said he would get down, and I stopped the car, "'You've got it all clear?' he asked, with a sort of wrench I forced myself to remember and repeat the directions given me. "'That's okay,' he said. "'Good-bye, then. Stay with that wallet.' Those were the last words I heard him speak, as the car moved gently away from him. Marlowe rose from his chair and pressed his hands to his eyes. He was flushed with the excitement of his own narrative— and there was in his look a horror of recollection that held both the listeners silent. He shook himself with a movement like a dog's, and then his hands behind him stood erect before the fire as he continued his tale. "'I expect you both know what the back reflector of a motor-car is.' Trent nodded quickly, his face alive with anticipation, But Mr. Couples, who cherished a mild but obstinate prejudice against motor-cars, readily confessed to ignorance. It is a small round, or more often rectangular, mirror, Marlow explained, rigged out from the right side of the screen in front of the driver, and adjusted in such a way that he can see, without turning round, if anything is coming up behind to pass him. It is quite an ordinary appliance, and there was one on this car. As the car moved on, and Manderson ceased speaking behind me, I saw in that mirror a thing that I wish I could forget. Marlowe was silent for a moment, staring at the wall before him. "'Manderson's face,' he said, in a low tone. He was standing in the road, looking after me, only a few yards behind.' and the moonlight was full on his face. The mirror happened to catch it for an instant. Physical habit is a wonderful thing. I did not shift hand or foot on the controlling mechanism of the car. Indeed, I dare say, it steadied me against the shock to have myself braced to the business of driving. You have read in books, I dare say, of hell looking out of a man's eyes, but perhaps you don't know what a good metaphor that really is. If I had not known Manderson was there, I should not have recognized the face. It was that of a madman, distorted, hideous in the imbecility of hate, the teeth bared in a simian grin of ferocity and triumph, the eyes. In the mirror I had this glimpse of the face alone. I saw nothing of whatever gesture there may have been as that writhing white mask glared after me and i saw it only for a flash the car went on gathering speed and as it went my brain suddenly purged of the vapours of doubt and perplexity was as busy as the throbbing engine before my feet i knew you say something in that manuscript of yours mr trent about the swift automatic way in which one's ideas arrange themselves about some new illuminating thought it is quite true. The awful intensity of ill-will that had flamed after me from those straining eyeballs had poured over my mind like a searchlight. I was thinking quite clearly now, and almost coldly, for I knew what, at least I knew whom, I had to fear, and instinct warned me that it was not a time to give room to the emotions that were fighting to possess me. The man hated me insanely. That incredible fact I suddenly knew. But the face had told me it would have told anybody more than that. It was a face of hatred gratified. It proclaimed some damnable triumph. It had gloated over me, driving away to my fate. This too was plain to me. And to what fate? I stopped the car. It had gone about two hundred and fifty yards, and a sharp bend of the road hid the spot where I had set Manderson down. I lay back in the seat and thought it out. Something was to happen to me. In Paris? Probably. Why else should I be sent there, with money and a ticket? But why Paris? That puzzled me, for I had no melodramatic ideas about Paris. I put the point aside for a moment— I turned to the other things that had roused my attention that evening—the lie about my persuading him to go for a moonlight run. What was the intention of that? Manderson, I said to myself, will be returning without me while I am on my way to Southampton. What will he tell them about me? How account for his returning alone without the car? As I asked myself that sinister question— THERE RUSHED INTO MY MIND THE LAST OF MY DIFFICULTIES. WHERE ARE THE THOUSAND POUNDS? AND IN THE SAME instant CAME THE ANSWER. THE THOUSAND POUNDS ARE IN MY POCKET. I GOT UP AND STEPPED FROM THE CAR. MY KNEES TREMBLED, AND I FELT VERY SICK. I SAW THE PLOT NOW, AS I THOUGHT. THE WHOLE OF THE STORY ABOUT THE PAPERS, AND THE NECESSITY OF THEIR BEING TAKEN TO PARIS, WAS A BLIND. With Manderson's money about me, of which he would declare I had robbed him, I was, to all appearance, attempting to escape from England, with every precaution that guilt could suggest. He would communicate with the police at once, and would know how to put them on my track. I should be arrested in Paris, if I got so far, living under a false name, after having left the car under a false name, disguised myself and travelled in a cabin, which I had booked in advance, also under a false name, it would be plainly the crime of a man without money, and for some reason desperately in want of it. As for my account of the affair, it would be too preposterous. As this ghastly array of incriminating circumstances rose up before me, I dragged the stout letter-case from my pocket. In the intensity of the moment, I never entertained the faintest doubt that I was right, and that the money was there. It would easily hold the packets of notes. But as I felt it, and weighed it in my hands, it seemed to me there must be more than this. It was too bulky. What more was to be laid to my charge? After all, a thousand pounds was not much to tempt a man like myself to run the risk of penal servitude. In this new agitation, scarcely knowing what I did, I caught the surrounding strap in my fingers, just above the fastening, and tore the staple out of the lock. These locks, you know, are pretty flimsy, as a rule. Here Marlowe paused and walked to the oaken desk before the window. Opening a drawer full of miscellaneous objects, he took out a box of odd keys, and selected a small one, distinguished by a piece of pink tape. He handed it to Trent. I kept that by me, as a sort of morbid memento. It is the key to the lock I smashed. I might have saved myself the trouble if I had known that this key was, at that moment, in the left-hand side pocket of my overcoat. Manderson must have slipped it in, either while the coat was hanging in the hall, or while he sat at my side in the car. I might not have found the tiny thing there for weeks. As a matter of fact, I did find it two days after Manderson was dead, but a police search would have found it in five minutes. And then I, I with the case and its contents in my pocket, my false name and my sham spectacles and the rest of it, I should have had no explanation to offer but the highly convincing one that I didn't know the key was there." Trent dangled the key by its tape idly. Then, how do you know this is the key of that case? he asked quickly. I tried it. As soon as I found it, I went up and fitted it into the lock. I knew where I had left the thing. So do you, I think, Mr. Trent, don't you?" There was a faint shade of mockery in Marlowe's voice. Touché, Trent said with a dry smile. I found a large empty letter-case with a burst lock lying with other odds and ends on the dressing-table in Manderson's room. Your statement is that you put it there. I could make nothing of it." He closed his lips. "'There was no reason for hiding it,' said Marlowe. "'But to get back to my story, I burst the lock of the strap. I opened the case before one of the lamps of the car. The first thing I found in it I ought to have expected, of course, but I hadn't.' He paused and glanced at Trent. "'It was,' began Trent mechanically, and then stopped himself, "'Try not to bring me in any more, if you don't mind,' he said, meeting the other's eye. "'I have complimented you already in that document on your cleverness. You need not prove it by making the judge help you out with the evidence.' "'All right,' agreed Marlowe. "'I couldn't resist just that much. If you had been in my place, you would have known before I did that Manderson's little pocket-case was there.' As soon as I saw it, of course, I remembered his not having had it about him, when I asked him for money, and his surprising anger. He had made a false step. He had already fastened his note-case up with the rest of what was to figure as my plunder, and placed it in my hands. I opened it. It contained a few notes, as usual. I didn't count them. Tucked into the flaps of the big case in packets were the other notes, just as I had brought them from London, and with them were two small wash-leather bags, the look of which I knew well. My heart jumped sickeningly again, for this, too, was utterly unexpected. In those bags, Manderson kept the diamonds in which he had been investing for some time past. I didn't open them. I could feel the tiny stones shifting under the pressure of my fingers. How many thousands of pounds worth there were, I have no idea. We had regarded Manderson's diamond-buying as merely a speculative fad. I believe now that it was the earliest movement in the scheme for my ruin. For any one like myself to be represented as having robbed him, there ought to be a strong inducement shown that had been provided with a vengeance now i thought i have the whole thing plain and i must act i saw instantly what i must do i had left manderson about a mile from the house it would take him twenty minutes fifteen if he walked fast to get back to the house where he would of course immediately tell his story of robbery and probably telephone at once to the police in Bishopsbridge. I had left him only five or six minutes ago, for all that I have just told you was as quick thinking as I ever did. It would be easy to overtake him in the car before he neared the house. There would be an awkward interview. I set my teeth as I thought of it, and all my fears vanished as I began to savour the gratification of telling him my opinion of him. There are probably few people who ever positively looked forward to an awkward interview with Manderson, but I was mad with rage. My honour and my liberty had been plotted against with detestable treachery. I did not consider what would follow the interview, that would arrange itself." End of Part 1, Chapter 14. Recording by Kirsten Weber.